0: Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, John Emmerich, and today we're talking to Mary Childs, the author of the new book, The Bond King, How One Man Made a Market, Built an Empire, and Lost It All. Mary is a co-host of NPR's Planet Money podcast. Welcome, Mary, and thanks for joining us today.
1: Hi, thanks for having me.
0: How did you end up working as a journalist specifically within the financial world? What was the path?
1: Well, um... I I started out kind of thinking I would be a political, you know, a politics reporter and I tried it and I was horrible at it. I could not understand how scoops happened. Like it seemed like just a person would tell you a thought that they had and that was a scoop if the person's important enough. So I just couldn't understand how you fact check that, how I just it blew my mind. And in financial reporting, you have, you know. Trades that you can look at. You have stock prices and, you know, lines that go up or down and they don't really not do what they're saying. You know, it's like a lot less confusing and a lot easier to fact check. So I found that I just understood everything better in financial markets. I felt more secure in my own ability to fact check things and not be led astray. And it's fun, you know, they're always everybody's always inventing new stuff and it's complicated and it's fun to figure out and it can be kind of elegant and it can be kind of funny. I just really appreciate the kind of um the the beauty of the structures in in financial journalism so or in finance that I get to write about so.
0: And I get the sense from reading the extra sections in the back of the book that you've been working on this particular book for a while.
1: Yes, that's correct. You get the right sense. <laughs>
0: how, how long?
1: Um, so Bill um, left PIMCO abruptly in September 2014. And I worked for about three months on trying to get, you know, the behind the scenes story, what really happened um, that in the moments leading up to that departure. And that was a very um, tough story to do because... <clears throat> excuse me, because obviously at the time no one wanted to talk to me. So that took me about three months to really kind of crack it and get that story. And then by the time I had that, you know, it was some two, 3,000 word story at Bloomberg, which is incredibly long for, you know, my career to date. But there was so much that I hadn't put in. So I just felt at that point. And, and then when it published, it was met with such an enormous response. I um I felt like there was just a lot more to do. So I started working on it basically right then. It was, it's been more or less since Bill left PIMCO.
0: And you, you tell the great Brownie story in the book, I'll, <laughs> I'll let the readers uncover it themselves. You spoke to well over 200 people for this book, including mm-hmm. Bill Gross. Mm-hmm. So after the, the, the Brownie story, um, <laughs> when did you first meet with him and, and how is that relationship and, and how has it been since the, uh, you, you finished interviewing everyone for this book?
1: yeah so we actually had met well before the alleged brownie incident um he you know I, I covered credit markets before uh starting to cover pimco and some other asset managers uh, while at Bloomberg News so I had a lot of uh overlap with pimco in that way but also had spoken directly to bill um, and I think the first time was in 2013 and then started covering pimco in April 2014 and had plenty of time then too to talk to him about you know oh the new direction the firm is going in the new structure yada yada so I kind Kind of arrived right in a really tumultuous period for Pimco, which only became more tumultuous. But we talked throughout that, um, you know, him him as the face of the firm. It was obviously relevant to for me as a beat reporter to to get to talk to him. Sure. So you know, he was super generous too. Um, in 2017, we sat down for multiple days for many many hours at a time, talking about you know his life and his childhood and his view of the world and investing and all this. So he was very generous with his time and his thoughts. Um, and then you know, I went off to like write and research and he was very responsive on email and I would kind of do some, Hey, is this, is this right? Was it this motel in Vegas or that one? Um, and then in 2021, um, my fact checker, you know, I had him on a, on a planet money episode in February, 2021, talking about a really big trade that he'd done that actually had turned out poorly, but he's, you know, game as ever. So he was happy to talk about it and he's not the kind of person who's like, Oh, that was a an embarrassing moment for me. No, he's just like, that's a fact. Let's talk. Yeah, fine. And then um in 2021, my the summer, my my fact checker sent a list of questions, which you know, it's all the facts that were gonna be in the book. So you can really see the kind of structure, the architecture of the book. Um and I think that he kind of looked at that and was like, This isn't what I wanted. This isn't oh, my story, according oh, to you know how yeah. I would tell it. And you know, he's never been unkind to me about it. He's he's really always been pretty respectful and, and understanding of the news gathering and reporting process, which is actually invaluable. You know, he is, he understands media as you probably can observe from 40 (laughs) odd years of having been on TV and in the press. Um, but, but it is, you know, there are other people who have been on TV and in the press for just as long and who are terrible to deal with. So it's interesting to me that he, he just gets it and knows like, and for the most part, gives you the latitude to do your work. So anyway, he just wrote his own and he published um, it 2 weeks before my book came out and <laughs> yeah it's interesting to see how they overlap and don't um they're they're different in many ways um but it is it is sort of an interesting exercise journalistically to have this kind of you know a source's own voice in full you know right alongside it and and you know he's been again he's been pretty cool about it so
0: that that's a gem of a detail that i i wasn't aware of that just <laughs> As to the, to the richness yeah. of an already rich story. And I, I, going back to your introduction uh, about how you got into finance, um, it's it's telling because my next question was this this book, it, it could be in business history, it could be in the finance section, the psychology section, because it's part of all three. And it's crazy how in this industry, there there is so much... Drama and what could just be mm-hmm. a rather you know mundane mathematical endeavor. Um, but my instinct, my instinct is to start with the last one, the the psychology. We'll get into that. But a quick business history question for you: Gross uh-huh. starts his professional life thanks to his mother, I think, uh-huh. as an analyst with Pacific Life. How does Pimco get formed outside of Pacific Life, with Gross owning the big equity stake that would eventually make him so rich in the Alliance deal?
1: Yeah. So. It, it is an interesting story that I think actually got super compressed in the book. Where over the course of like the 1980s, they spun out and spun out and spun out in tiny little increments. Oh, and it was very annoying to report because I was like, wait, so you spun out in 83, but then again, it like, wait, what? And I just, it was just very hard to understand that kind of incremental. And that's just like a, a tweak to the compensation structure. You know, all of these things are just like, it's weird how the closer you get to the details, the more formless it appears in a way where it's like, okay, you're still part of Pack Life, but you're not really. But you're you're sort of not a standalone. But you have this profit sharing agreement, which you know anyway. So yeah. it, it was this kind of constant renegotiation where Bill Podlick, the then CEO, and you know some of the uh, the other guys at Pimco um, would go back to Pacific Mutual and be like, you know, then Pacific Mutual and say, hey, we're generating all these profits we're going to, we're going to, you know, we need some kind of compensation for it and kind of bang the table and try to give a little show. And they flirted with the idea of going elsewhere, but it didn't really take off. They, they actually liked the structure, I think at Pacific Mutual Um, and Pacific Mutual to their credit, they were like, okay, yeah, we want you to stick around. You're generating a lot of money. You're probably going to keep doing it. So these, these structures kept getting kind of tweaked and tweaked as they demanded more and more um, kind of of the profits and and more ownership of, of what they were doing.
0: Got it. So it wasn't a singular event. Yeah. Yeah. It was many,
1: many times. Yeah. And then they did like a reverse merger in 94 uh, and like went public. There were a lot of different iterations before the Allianz one. Yeah. And all of that, like I spent so long on that reverse merger and I did nothing on it in the book. So I apologize to (laughs) Bill Thompson.
0: (laughs) No, give me something to ask. It's great. Um, Now to the psychology piece. Um, At the end of the book, you contemplate something I've often wondered about, which is do people who end up rich and famous and powerful, And exhibit eccentric behavior, or to your point, sometimes excessively petty behavior. Were they always (laughs) weird, or did the money and fame make them weird? In this story, in regards to Gross, there's this fascinating to me red flag up front, which is this overriding desire to be famous above all the Mm -hmm. other options. When does that motivation happen? When? When is it? um, Does it last his whole career? Why is it the most important thing to him? And, um, and if, if you can, how does it relate back to his, his pettiness and eccentric behavior?
1: (laughs) I think, um, you know, it was there throughout his career. I think it, it stemmed back from, his childhood is is what he would tell you where he had you know cold canadian parents who didn't hug him enough and he felt you know he felt like he had this kind of chasm or this this hole in his heart where um and i'm projecting a little bit you know he's never said hole in his heart but Absolutely. he did say that he you know <laughs> seemed to equate fame with love that if he could be famous and be this big person on stage that in some way you know he knew rationally that this made no sense but in emotionally, he seemed to seek out fame as a way, as a proxy for love, and I think you see that coming out in you know his pettiness. He, he had this kind of. I don't want to say at all costs because that sort of belies his ability to weigh risk, right right but but to some extent, there is that disconnect between head and heart with Bill um, as one of his former colleagues just put it to me. and I think that that's really true where rationally he knows that this isn't going to help him, that you know, whatever petty behavior he's about to undertake is not going to be good for him is not what he actually wants, but he does it anyway, right. and I think first of all, I find that so resonant because, like who among us? <laughs> Like, I certainly have instances where I'm like, oh, you think, you know, you're going to like cut me in the grocery line or whatever extremely mundane thing. But it's not interesting or exciting when it's me, you know, because I'm not a billionaire. But if it's him, he has the means to kind of wage war against whoever has wronged him. And and make it really miserable for them. So that, to your point, I think is like, that's to some extent a revealed preference. That's a, a, a difference between our means and our abilities where I'm not going to, you know, be able to exact a whole lot of revenge on my enemies. Right. <laughs> like I might be like kind of rude, but that's pretty much the extent of it. And, right. and Bill just has much, much more capacity and much more just so many resources at his disposal. So I think, and to, another point too, is that there is a side psychological change. And I'm not sure the extent to which this is true for Bill Gross. I certainly couldn't say. But for all, you know, the studies show that, you know, when you reach a certain level of wealth and, you know, power and whatever, that your brain does change. Your decision-making changes. You become less empathetic. So it's possible that some of that comes to bear where he just, you know, after so long of being so rich and famous, the way you interact with people Changes. I'm not sure how that shows up in his life, but um, but I do think that those underlying motivations were definitely there from the get-go.
0: Got it. And maybe it's just one of those things where you're you have that um, recessed gene in you, and then the opportunity (laughs) comes out and uh, you exercise it. Yeah, right. Uh, Like, am
1: I going to be terrible to that person in the grocery store line when I'm a billionaire? Like, let's find (laughs) out. Let's revisit. Right.
0: Right. (laughs) And uh, yeah, so he, he can, he exacts his revenge. He can act cruelly. And you talk about the world he built was cruel, petty, and filled with boys pulling wings off flies, which is just such a wonderful line. But he could also do it publicly. So uh, let's talk about his investment outlooks, which I remember from back in the yeah. day. I you know I, I worked with another portfolio manager in my career that was sure he was the next James Grant, going so mm-hmm. far as to adopting the bow tie look at one point. Wow, And the... The outlooks uh, come up throughout your book without you expressing a personal view about them one way or the other until like the last quarter of the book when he writes about his dead cat, Bob. And then again, in reference to his first outlook, of what, 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 when you arrived at Janice, the word you use is bizarre. And they were bizarre to me at the time, too. I, yeah. I, I remember getting them shared around the investment community. Did he think he was a great writer? What was he trying to achieve with these you know parable and metaphor-rich investment letters um, and I'm assuming he thought everyone was really waiting to hear, you know, quarterly or monthly what he had to say. Well, what What's your take uh, on that? That, that d- dynamic of those outlooks?
1: I think that's I think that's right. Like he he was waiting. He did have the impression that everyone was waiting to hear from him, but. I should note that it was true that that's true and accurate people were hanging on these monthly outlooks you know they okay. they were read across the street and like to some extent of course I'm biased I, I you know stay in the credit world that's like the space that I grew up in you know as a as a journalist and it's right. kind of a space that I like to stay in just because I love it and find it interesting but so so of course there's some bias there we're like I'm like everybody's reading it it's like okay my you know bond people are reading it for sure but <laughs> I do think I think it crossed over into other asset classes and I do think that it was part of his celebrity I think that it Helped to build this, you know, these these bizarro anecdotes that were, you know, confessional and everything that's ever happened to Bill Gross. You know, you you can really paint a good mosaic of his life just from his own writing, um, which was a boon to me, right? Like as a as a person writing a book about this guy, I had so much to mine, so much kind of personal content, which was very helpful from him. But it also you know, I don't think everybody was doing that when he started out. I know. And I don't think people really do it today, even where they, you know, he had this position of influence in the market, but he also was basically like client, like retail focused, like mainstream focused with this investment True. outlook output where people could turn to him and say, Oh my gosh, well, this genius, well, gross guy, he thinks that interest rates are doing this or that. And I think that that was a big part, you know, the, the weird anecdotes get you in the door, and now you're reading and then you're going to hear about his, you know, interest rate Got call. It. And I think that that was actually quite sticky. I think people really liked those and it helped to build and cultivate and retain this kind of fan base that also translated to uh, an investor base, you know,
0: business. Yep. Okay. Um, <laughs> he, he's not the only character in this book. elarian Arian is a character in his own right. The, the footnotes yes. from his lawyers throughout the book were additional entertainment for me. I enjoyed those <laughs> early. I'm uh, so glad. Yeah, you're right of Gross's view. He saw only Allerian's hollow insistence on FaceTime in the office, his breezy economic doublespeak, words that slip through your hands like rushing water, how he managed to talk so much without saying anything. Is Is there anything to that view, in your opinion?
1: <laughs> I think... Oh gosh, that's a tough question. Sometimes I think Mohammed Elarian might be talking over my head. You know, like maybe he's hitting on some macroeconomic theory that I haven't gone to grad school to understand. But at the same time, there are moments where he kind of he does have a gift for clearly stating like consensus, like what the the macro vibe is. And and I think that that is really annoying for Bill Gross. You know, I don't really. I don't have any skin in the game here, so it's not annoying for me. But I do think that, like, if you're saying, oh, you know, the economy is coming to a T-junction, it could go one way or it could go the other way. Bill Gross is going to be like, what? What? Right. right.
0: <laughs> Take a stand. Yeah. Right.
1: Like, where is it going to go? Like, do the next thing. So I think that to me is like, you know, he's a, an economist and a lot of that job is not, you know, making those calls. <laughs> there's, a, there's an actual right. friction. You know, he was an investor, so that's, I don't mean to discount that, but there is that, like, just a, a formational or like structural difference between being an investor and being an economist.
0: Yeah. Th- I liked your comment about the w- dealing with consensus. I started following on on Twitter just recently. And within a week, I came up with a term called copy paste journalism, you know, just kind of <laughs> regurgitating. You know, uh, I'm, I'm the guy's got, you know, he's a brilliant guy in, in all regards. He's definitely at a minimum, a master of corporate politics and and survival and public image but he's got to have enormous other gifts but i just after a while i actually said to my phone uh while the twitter account was open you know so what's the trade you know what do you what are you recommending we do with the headline inflation interest rate numbers that we all got at the same time you know but um i'll get off that um you talked about the communication to their investors being bond investors versus the stock market bill gross for years Felt the need to pontificate about the stock market, something yeah. that Gunlick does today. In fact, there was a ominous headline this morning with his picture on the front, saying "calamity may be coming." Um, is it, it might simply, be. <laughs> yeah, I know it's, it's always around the corner, but it, is it a transparent attempt to kind of talk their their book, talk about bonds as superior alternatives to stocks, or is there another motive, another just you know in, enjoying the attention and being read, just like you know Elon Musk. Tweets all day. What? Um, why were those guys always talking about the stock market?
1: I think it is a good way to build your base. You know, I think it is, it does seem to be more effective and more like retail investors invest so much less in bonds and certainly don't day trade them really, you know? So I right. think that's a big difference where if I'm day trading in the stock market and I see this guy on CNBC saying stuff that's relevant to me, I'm going to be so much more interested than if he's like, oh, I think the yield on the 30 year bund I'm out. I'm That's not going to help me at all. Right. Um, yeah, so I think that that's that's definitely a part of it is is the ability to appeal to retail investors and people who are, you know, thinking about what to do with their money but also want someone to listen to and it has this kind of not that that marketing benefit really does end up having a business building effect.
0: One more borderline psychology question. There is as you say with Bill his focus on legacy and pride which is not unique and some selective memory and this special relationship with the truth. Neither of us as we've just talked about as a mental health expert. Let's disclose that up front. But do you yep. buy his Asperger's self-diagnosis or is, is this really just pretty standard kind of narcissistic personality disorder, this relationship <laughs> with the truth and selective memory? I don't mean that in a condescending way. I've dealt with people like that before in this profession and it doesn't make yeah. them bad people, but it does affect how you deal with them.
1: Yeah. I think you've hit on something where there's a lot of conflating, you know, oh, autism spectrum with, being a jerk. And that's not right. That's not appropriate. Like those things are distinct and that's not cool to conflate them. And I'm not saying Bill necessarily was like, I was a jerk because of it, you know, but I do think that there is and across financial markets. I've definitely, I remember when the big short came out, everybody was reading it and everybody was going through that Michael Burry checklist being like, Oh my God, me too. And that's indeed how Bill Gross basically came to the realization that he, that he might, you know, be on the spectrum and ended up getting, as you say, this diagnosis. So given that he got a diagnosis, I'm certainly not going to argue with that. Um, that's, you know, seems like someone who knows better than me has weighed in. So I'm going to just leave, right. let that be. But I do think that it causes, you know, it, the, the manifestations of that are going to be things that that aren't, you know mainstream corporate culture stuff so I do think that sets people up for some friction where you know if Bill Gross is coming to the office and he wants to exist in a way that's you know comfortable for him which means you know no eye contact and letting him focus and all this stuff you know people super you know gregarious, like hyper extrovert, not neurodivergent, you're totally neurotypical people are going to be like, Hey, Bill, how's it going? And, you know, slap him on the back. Uh And that's just like devastating, you know, that's just so disruptive and annoying. So I think, yes, like those things are separate and distinct and they are not at all. Like there's not really an overlap between being an asshole and can I curse? I just went for it. (laughs) Yeah. I'm
0: surprised you you beat me to it. Go ahead.
1: so, you know, a diagnosis is not is not a free, you know, a blank check to be a jerk. But I do think that it does mean that you're going to interact with people differently. And sometimes people aren't equipped for that or are prepared for that or willing to work around that and or with that. And I think that, like, that's a commentary on, a cor- on our corporate culture and PIMCO's corporate culture. And I do think that that, you know... It does add a layer, right, of making him make a little bit more sense. I think that you know, some people have told me they'll be reading and they're like, "This guy sounds a little sp- like uh, maybe he's," so-, you know. And then by the, the they spectrum, get to the end and yeah. they're like, "Oh, he's diagnosed." I, you know, I I, I felt that, so I'm I'm happy that that feeling exists and it isn't like uh, you know, you're not surprised by the diagnosis in the end because I don't think it's a surprise. I don't think it's it, you know, not being any kind of professional. It does sound correct. <laughs> It does seem like something that might be relevant to to him and his life, sure. and, and yeah. So
0: okay, and yeah. now we wander into the the finance section of the bookstore.
1: All right, uh, let's
0: talk about the great financial crisis right up front, page four. You talk about companies and financial institutions uh, being bailed out, and and this is something I've thought a lot about since it happened. And at the time, I'll never, f- I've never been able to find the clip, but for. Me, what is one of the more compelling pieces of financial news video, if there's such a thing, is this debate that went on between Bill Ackman of Gotham and mm-hmm. Bill Gross about Fannie Mae. And as I recall it, Ackman's in the CNB studio, Gross is video in, and they're debating the value of Fannie Mae debt. Ackman does this indisputable finance 101 analysis. Right. You know, it's, uh, you've got $100 of debt. The enterprise value is worth $75, therefore,
1: right, you know, right, right. For the,
0: they got it right off the debt. They debate briefly. Gross cuts him off and says, "I get paid to be right on the trade, and I'm going to be right on the trade," which huh. he very much was. You know, so this is this is a really big event, almost in, in financial history. He was involved yeah. in so many things, but this one was what was his role in the Fannie Mae government bailout. Mm-hmm. Uh, as it, as it happened. And was it a gamble? Was it a gamble initially? Or did some point as I, I the vibe I got from that interview that at some point he knew he was, he knew he was right.
1: I mean, I think, ugh, I have such a hard time parsing, like when you're talking your book and when you're not like, You're talking your book because it's your book and you believe in it. So you're not just, there's always kind of an interaction there between what you actually believe and what you're just trying to say to make money. Those things are oftentimes the same. Like there's a lot of overlap between those things. So that's a little confusing to me, first of all, just something I observe a lot and something I think about a lot. But in this case, you know, Bill Gross and Pimco were truly at the epicenter of the mortgage market and had been for so long. And This crisis emanated from the mortgage market. So more than anyone, I think they were equipped to see what was happening, equipped to understand it and equipped to understand what had to happen next. So and, and you know, they were so influential, too, in the market that I think when the U.S. government was looking around trying to figure out what to do and Bill Gross and PIMCO are out there saying, hey, you're going to have to go ahead and make that promise explicit. You're going to have to go ahead and back Fannie and Freddie. You know, they they guaranteed directly or indirectly some $5 trillion of of mortgage debt at that yeah. time. And that's a boatload, especially when so, so much of that is ab- is about to be written down substantially underwater. or has to be, right? Yeah. Exactly. So underwater. So I think that's the, you know there's this weird interplay between the government and and Pimco and these enormous bond managers where the government more or less has to listen to them and has to say okay if they're you know if Fannie and Freddie have to roll new to new debt if they have to finance themselves in the in the market where Pimco is an enormous player and buyer are they going to not listen are they going to just not like they really are are in a position where they have to to kind of at least take into very, very good consideration what PIMCO has to say. So in this instance, you know, to me, this is the moment where Pimco's at the kind of height of their power, where the government's trying to figure out what to do. And Bill Gross and PIMCO, others at PIMCO are very public saying, you're going to have to make this explicit. You have to back Fannie and Freddie. And then they do it. Right. And it was an enormous day for PIMCO total return. I think the best day the fund had ever had to that Huge. point.
0: Yeah. yeah. And it... It's fascinating to me as a former equity person, you know, the insider trading laws and equities are pretty straightforward. And um, although, you know, people try to make a living skirting around the edges, they are what they are. Um, What are the, what are, what is the equivalent in the bond market besides Mm -hmm. this Fannie Mae deal, the Ginny Mae trade, cornering nines, odd lots, they seem to be able to do a lot of profitable transactions for which there is no legal equivalent, I, I don't think in the stock market, and and it's amazing to me how, as you said, that there are times when they were the market, you know, mm-hmm. and and it was so profitable. But what, what are trading laws? I'll, I said insider trading laws, but uh, like in the, in the bond market, there's so many different segments: corporate treasuries and mortgage backs. How are they? Mm-hmm. How do they compare?
1: I feel like not great. It's my sense, and I'm not a regulator, but it's my sense that the the regulations are pretty ill fitting, and that you know there's this they're kind of behind the curve on <laughs> in in the bond market trying to figure out how to regulate it, and that the regulations they do have just don't sit that well on the actual actions. You know, there's just a mismatch between how people behave and how things actually interact. So with the and how they and how they try to regulate things, and part of that is just that's life you know like it's always going to be a little gnarly and hairier in real life than than it actually should be in this beautiful theoretical land of regulatory and you have to kind of ascribe intent at some time anyway so i do think there's some structural like natural uh tension there but also i don't know i just i think for a long time they weren't as focused on it and they weren't chasing it as hard and and you see that where they're just kind of trying to play catch up and asking questions about hey is this how you value this security hey um and then how does this one trade and it's kind of basic stuff, you know, according to my sources who, um, can be a little condescending sometimes, so, yeah. <laughs> so with salt. Yeah. but you know, like that's a little, and, and you see that with, okay. I also covered earlier in my career, like the London whale. And there was oh, this wow. moment where, yeah, it was so fun where, you know, he was within the, he was marking things within the bid ask, but maybe a little bit on one side. And it, there was this confusion over a week. Can you get in trouble if you're still within the bid ask? Like, <laughs> like, is that, is that not okay? If I went in the bid-ask spread, I should be fine. Like, that's literally the, like, lanes of where I can play, right? But there's this this kind of contradiction. And, like, the odd lots thing that you referenced that Pimco did, yeah, it was this, um, basically, in, in super simple terms, buying these kind of, like, decayed, gnarly little bundles of securities and plopping them into a pricing mechanism that didn't account for the gnarliness and the fact uh. that they were... Would- underloved in the market as a result of that kind of, you know, decay and gnarliness. And they would get marked up to the whole lot price, to the price for the like beautiful 100% of all the securities are still there, not, you know, 54% or whatever it may be. And, you know, these things that there's an, an obvious price difference because they're, you know, maybe there are less fewer securities that are going to contribute to a revenue stream, but also people don't feel like dealing with these things. So they traded a discount, discount to even that. Yeah. So, you know, that wasn't, really like, is that illegal? It's not their fault that the pricing system, you know, marks these a little bit wrong. Did they take full advantage of that? Yeah, it does look that way, doesn't it? And that is indeed the conclusion that the SEC came to. But it is. Yeah. So it's one of those moments where you're like, when that story came out, I remember everyone being like, oh my God, wait, what does that mean for my odd lots? Am I not allowed to by odds now if they get rounded up. Mm. And the answer is like no you can if you're not trying to base an investment strategy and like kind of boost your the 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 you know, performance—the the look of your performance by using these, by over reliance on these things. So, there's a lot of nuance there that I think is impossible to codify and really truly write out into whatever rule. You can't just be like, "Well, it depends on what you meant when you said it," right? Right. And I think that that can be hard to do. And there's a lot, you know, you asked about the the kind of insider trading e things in the bond market, and there's a yeah. lot of material non public information. Or, you know, I think that there's a lot of weirdness in distressed debt land where your own actions can become become influential in the company, you know, your plan leaks out and that's non-public information that can affect the the trajectory and the, you know, the price of the company's securities or, you know, you meet with the CFO who's telling you the, basically the debt schedule, the funding schedule that the company will have. And that's normal and fine. That's not a problem, but right. it is kind of, you know, a look that other people might not get that I'm certainly not getting, you know, in my home office. So <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> not yet, you know, right. but also I think, you, there are completely acceptable ways like anchoring new issues in the bond market where, you know, when a new company debenture is coming out and people, underwriters want to find somebody to buy a huge slug of that debt so that everybody else wants to buy it, they call PIMCO. They call PIMCO and they call BlackRock. And those new issues, way, 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 way more often than not, pop as soon as they're issued. So right. you're going to almost get a guaranteed little return just by virtue of being big and being the first port of call.
0: Yeah. And they provide liquidity, and um, mm-hmm. in that regard, and that's worth something. So you talk, you as you said, with the odd lots, users, there's ways you can do it, and ways you shouldn't do it. Cross tra- excuse me, cross trades are another tactic mm-hmm. that can be structured legally. Yeah, seventeen A sevens come up a lot in the book. How how were they uh, using them, and as as time has passed, has that passed buster in hindsight?
1: Hmm. So. 1787 is an exemption in the 40 Act that basically allows you to trade within funds between, you know, if if they're all kind of under the same umbrella and the same fund family. And that means, you know, if I'm running a fund and it's, you know, the really nice income fund. Wait, I shouldn't say income because that's dance. Excuse me. The really nice money fund. Mm. And I get hit with a ton of redemption requests. But I like all the bonds that I hold. I really want to raise cash, but I don't want to necessarily get rid of those bonds. They're good bonds. I bought them on purpose. I picked them, right? And there's a world in which I can sell it to my neighbor over here in the same fund family to, you know, Bill Gross or to Dan Iverson or to whomever, because they're good bonds and we want to keep them. I'm gonna keep them in-house and I don't feel like releasing them back into the street for no reason. You know, the the my redemption requests are totally random and have nothing to do with like, you know, the beautiful bonds that I have in my portfolio. So I can save those bonds and raise cash by selling them to my compatriot over here and, you know, not have to take them to the open market and get dinged and have people front run me and give me, you know, bad prices for no reason. So it kind of helps to buffer I think this kind of um, this potential deleterious effect of redemption requests, and you know, I think that's that's a little controversial because the way that I put it is not how they th- want to think of it. But I do think that Pimco seventeen eighty seven more liberally than their peers, and I I think that that's you know from who, everyone that I've talked to in the market within Pimco and without, they're like, oh yeah, no, like the way Pimco uses it is is way more liberal, way more enthusiastic hmm. than, and there are other firms that are like, oh, we, excuse you, we don't do that. You know, like, yeah, give me yeah. this look like I just asked if they, like, do murder on the weekends. They're just like, why would you <laughs> even suggest this? Yeah. So there's, and, and I don't know, you know, the, the SEC, I think regulators were looking at this more recently, so I'm sure there's been some kind of, you know, polishing and scrubbing going on, because um, there were you know letters about how this is, you know, very important for us to be able to function, and you know, I think they do use it for, you know, not only for Uh, not having a fire sale if they don't want to, but also or or at least buffering the impact of that fire sale, whatever selling needs to happen, but also, you know, flipping stuff into new funds, right? Transferring securities into a new fund that's just launched or shuffling. There are reasons why you would want to shuffle things around that are not just because, oh, this, you know, enormous redemption request has come in and we need to figure out what to do. So, yeah. I don't know. I think that they, that I think, I think the SEC is paying attention um, and is looking at this sort of like now ish. So I'd be curious to hear, I don't know the impact of that. I'm not, I'm not sure like how we'll that's changed. Out. Exactly. I'm excited yeah. to find out, you know, it is my favorite thing and I'm so glad that you asked about it, but okay. um, <laughs> I feel like no one, no one ever asked about 17A7. <laughs> really?
0: Oh yeah. jumped am yeah, I my mean, board member. So I kind of, you know, I, I, I get updated by fund council on, you know, what the, what the SEC is looking at. And so it's part of my job, but I, I admit I nerd out on it a bit, you know. Yeah. And, no, it's uh, good. That was an interesting one. Um We'll, we'll end up back at the uh, business history section of the store. I had no idea Gross had entertained a move to double line upon leaving PIMCO oh, before yeah. deciding on Janice. What, what was the deciding factor in his choosing Janice, an equity shop over over Double Line, if you know it.
1: Yeah, well, I think there are a couple things um, at play here where Jeffrey Gunlock is obviously this enormous personality, this enormous celebrity in the bond market too, and has to some extent, you know, taken the Bond King crown, though he says he doesn't, you know, want that title (laughs) at all. Right. And that structurally, you can imagine just knowing only those things would create a really awkward situation if Bill Gross were to come work at Double Line. Like, you can just imagine those enormous personalities Not getting along. And Bill had just had this experience. He was in the thick of this experience in 2014 where he's being kind of bonked around and and people are are not respecting him enough and not like supporting him in the public eye and not doing all of these things. And you can only imagine that going from a a place where he has been king for so long and has been the boss to a place where he's not even the main guy, like that's not going to cure the problems that he has. That's not going to fix anything. But he remembered, you know, he talked to Dick Wilde that summer. Mm-hmm. Or earlier Sorry. in the year when yeah. he uh when things were getting a little weird at Pimco and he just wanted to have a backup. And Dick Weil had worked at Pimco for many years. He was, you know, this very polished executive. He was the COO. He worked closely with the CEO. And, you know, people didn't necessarily think that Bill Gross and Dick Weil got along by any stretch. People kind of thought that Bill was a little mean to Dick. But when Dick Weil was running Janice, You know, the no hard feelings. Bill Gross just gave him a call and was like, would you have room? You know, is is there a spot for me? And of course, Dick is like, this is an enormous opportunity for us. Yes, of course, we have a spot for you, Bill Gross. And I think it did what what he wanted, really, is it brought all this attention to Janice. It brought money in and it made, you know, put them in the headlines. He told me once that it was they were um, that Bill Gross was their Peyton Manning. Uh, a game-changing wow. level of talent for them. And wow. I mean, I think that, you know, he is a celebrity and, and people really care. So I think to some extent it just was a, a a good match where it achieved some of Dick Wiles' goals and it definitely achieved some of Bill's goals because he just wanted a fund and he wanted to be able to keep keep trading in the market and it allowed him to do that.
0: Right. And what a, what a great uh, Denver-centric uh, reference for uh, Janice to come up with at the time, uh, Peyton yeah. Manning. Um, Bill Gross's personal story drifts from bizarre to sad at the end of the book uh, especially in his public interactions with his son and his ex-wife sue his role in that divorce reading like a retreating army leaving devastation in its wake is a whole new level of bizarre but that's for the readers to check out and understand mary besides non-stop mm-hmm. interviews for this book where else can listeners find you in your work
1: I am at Planet Money. I'm a co-host, um, and we are, you know, a twice weekly podcast on NPR. And I'm on Twitter at MDC, and you know, LinkedIn and Instagram and all that. I do want to say though, I just looked it up. It looks like the SEC has abandoned uh, rewriting the uh, Rule Seventeen Eighty Seven. Huh? I'm not sure. Don't quote me on that yet. But let me, <laughs> let me Google it. But I do. Th- that is interesting. There's like a new. Uh, the commission has issued a joint statement in 2021. Um, Is that they the news that, again? Yeah, that everybody freaked out or that they were like trying to reform it. They're like, no, 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 no. Yeah, okay, it was at the mm-hmm. end of the year. So they're just not going to fix a problem of which they're not aware. I love it.
0: Got it. Kick they it abandoned the, the
1: much-needed effort to amend it. Wow. Cool. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> That's okay. I literally had – I was like Googling just to be like, what even has happened since I last launched? Right, month?
0: right. <laughs> so it um, looks like they gave up. Yeah, they'll, they'll do that. Yeah. Until, until another SEC head decides to change direction. Right,
1: right. Okay. That it needs tackling.
0: The bond king. <laughs> Bill Gross invented the bond trading market and PIMCO would make legendary contributions to the investing lexicon like the new normal and the shadow banking system. But the journey from dead cats to dancing was anything but smooth. The book is a hole in one, Mary, and I can't thank you enough for joining us today.
1: Thank you so much. That means so much to me. This was really fun.